Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Counterpoint Podcast. I'll be your host today. My name is Maurice, and I'm joined by my colleague, Tarun, who recently published a white paper on cellular technology transitions and the potential for SOC players, um, and SOC meaning system on chip, which we'll be looking into today and diving a bit further. Hey, Tarun, how's it going? Hey, Maurice. All good here. How are you doing? I'm doing great as well. Thanks. Um, so yeah, um, I think this is a pretty exciting topic to get into, especially in terms of um, what SOC players can be doing uh, and what the opportunities are. And also, um, I think we'll talk a little bit about you know different types of smartphones and feature phones and how they fit into this. So, you know, just to set the stage here, um, I think right now, you know, in a lot of mature markets uh, like the U.S., U.K., China. Uh, South Korea, we're transitioning from 4G to 5G, right? And um, that's one transition that we'll look into. But the other one is also for emerging markets where operators are, rather than going from 4G to 5G, they're looking into how do we get people from 2G or 3G networks to 4G? And I think particularly in places like Brazil or India, that's um, that's a really hot topic for, for many operators and um, many handset providers right now. Right. Yeah. So for 4G smartphones, um, usually, you know, they're under about $50 or so um, that have been really making inroads into these emerging markets. Um, however, uh, feature phones uh, still have a pretty sizable chunk of, of the share of, of total smartphones that are being sold. So naturally, this represents a big opportunity for operators and handset vendors um, to, to look into. So that's kind of the stage uh, where we're at right now. And um, why don't we get into some of the questions I have for you? Sound good, Tarun? Sure. Makes sense. Awesome. So tell me a little bit more about um, why feature phones are actually still important. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about the new iPhones or new Samsung phones, but a lot of the world actually still has feature phones. So what's, what's driving this or why is it so important still? Right, right. So, yeah, Maurice, uh, good one. So, actually, if you look at uh, these days, uh, normally when we engage into the connectivity side of discussions, uh, we we are communicating through our smartphones. We are uh, looking at the app uh, side of the things. But there is a big chunk of the market which is there and uh, which is hardly addressed. Like, so we are talking about a potential size of 2 billion segment. Like, for example, right now, if you talk about the installed base of feature phone users across the world, it is almost 2 billion, which makes it almost 26% of the entire world population. And if you add on top of it, the people who are not connected, which do not have a phone, which do not have internet connectivity, not even a smartphone, that's another 2.5 billion. So, we are talking about a potential of like 4.5 billion population where this kind of uh, segment still fits, right? And and again, you are right, like most of it is coming from emerging markets like India, Brazil, a big chunk of markets in Africa uh, where the feature phones are still very relevant these days. And uh, coming back to your question, like why feature phones are still relevant, uh, there are a couple of reasons uh, behind it. Um, if you look at for a lot of people who are like, let's say, below the poverty line um, or uh, the literacy rate is very, very low um, and even the content consumption or even the uh, 
where the content is not optimized for the small screen, uh, feature phone still makes sense for a lot of people. Um, and, and you will be surprised, like, uh, even there are markets uh, in the world uh, where the cost of charging a phone um, is even higher than the cost of the phone itself over one, um, one year or two year time period. Uh, the cost of the data uh, in some of the markets, if, if you look at like the differential between the cheapest data rate in the world, uh, which is uh, in few cents per GB, and the costliest in the world, which is like $26 for a GB. So we are living in a world with this level of uh, differentiation, like across uh, different regions, across different countries. So there's still a, a big, I can say, like digital divide, which needs to be covered, um, especially coming from the markets like India and Africa, which together contribute around almost like, uh, I'll say like four in five feature phone users. So so that these are the countries, these are the regions where feature phones are still very, very uh, relevant uh, because uh, people still uh, do not find it meaningful to upgrade to the smartphones uh, because of the form factor they have been very comfortable with um, even the uh, their their social status or even their earnings do not allow them to move to the smartphones the literacy rate is there uh, there are other infrastructure challenges as well like the um, electricity and no battery backup uh, things like these uh, and and even the use cases like the durability which these uh, feature phones come up with um, maybe some of these entry-level smartphones do not come up with these level of capability so there are different uh, factors uh, which are being applied to some of these user base who are still sticking to the feature phones and it's still a massive like 2 billion in number is still a huge user base yeah, and you're right. Um, and, and thanks for giving us kind of more of a, a background on that, especially in these markets, right? These feature phones make it uh, more accessible for people to um, communicate with their family, uh, to do business. Um, it, it provides them, um, you know, a digital means of transaction, um, often also, you know, the way that they pay for services. Um, so it, it's it's a great way for um, a lot of people to to have access to things that they previously haven't had, right? And and that's one of the big things. And the use case, uh, Morris, uh, will be uh, uh, it is again varies by region to region. I'm sure, like the particularly in North America, I, I'm sure, like you can uh, give a couple of examples. The people who are still stick, sticking to the feature phone um, maybe have a different requirement, like elderly population or someone who is looking for a ruggedized phones but someone in in africa uh, they have a different set of use cases when it comes to these uh, set of devices yeah so why don't we talk a little bit about that more then so what, what kind of opportunities you actually see for handset makers here um, especially with you know like feature rich phones or um or what we also call smart feature phones. Uh, like what, what can they do with, with these devices in order to give more access to people? Yeah, I think uh, if you look at um, the average upgrade rate in a smartphone is, is always like close to like two and a half, half years um, across different regions. But when it comes to feature phones, it is almost like three and a half years, which means uh, 
there is a less innovation happening in this segment, which caters to 2 billion population. Um, and if you look at like some of the development goals, which uh, big bodies like United Nations offer, like for example, uh, uh, the main agenda of them is to significantly increase access to information and communication technology. Correct. For the sustainable development goals you're talking about. Exactly. And, and that is very important to uplift these users from a basic connectivity so that they can start using the internet and get connected to the world in a more relevant way. Because while doing that, they will be not uplifting themselves, but it will be a a full implement of the country involved. So, for example, if someone who is living in uh, Nigeria or Kenya or Ghana, the more people start using internet, uh, the better it will be for the entire community and hence the need for these form factor of devices to be upgraded to smart devices. So, if, uh, let's say, someone does not want to upgrade from a feature phone to smartphone, uh, let's see how within the same form factor uh, they can access the internet. And that's why the role of the smart feature phones become even more important. Um, And um, they not only just provide the data, that is, again, from the user perspective, it will be very important, but again, from the operator's point of view. So, for example, if a lot of 2G subscribers are moving to the 4G, uh, some of the operators in these countries can actually... uh, use this uh, spectrum in a more efficient way uh, basically um, and and that will help them to gain a lot in terms of opex in terms of their network transition in terms of even the cost per gigabit so it will be even uh, better for a lot of these operators uh, if these users start migrating from 2g to 4g so that's that's the kind and and in one of our studies like we have done uh, if users are upgrading from 2G to 4G smart feature phones, there is a cost benefit of almost $7 billion involved for operators over the next three years. So that's the kind of benefit we are looking at if if operators um, go for this transition from 2G to 4G or even through these devices, basically. Right. And uh, just just going back, um, can you give any other examples of um, ways or opportunities that have uh, arisen from people using feature rich phones? Um, I'm, I'm talking about like, you know, having access to a mobile banking app or uh, being able to, to pay for their electricity. Um, do, do you have anything in particular that stands out as um, ways that these opportunities are presenting right now? Yeah, so so if you look at like let's take an example of uh, uh, a region like Africa, so digital payments, right? Uh, so we are right now living in this COVID world where um, this, uh, if if you look at the way the people are uh, doing their transactions, it's getting more and more digital because um, everyone is uh, looking for uh, a touchless based uh, mechanism so in that case if we are making more and more apps for smartphones we are losing on a big chunk of users who have only feature phones so uh, if we have something like a smart feature phones people can always use like digital payments through their uh, smart feature phones so this kind of like adoption has always been there in the markets like africa i think they were uh, once uh, first ones to uh, 
adopt this kind of uh, transition. So, for example, uh, M-Pesa has been quite popular in Africa, right? So, these kind of, of apps can be built even for the feature phone users and, and not just uh, here in the digital landscape, but more in the entertainment as well. The, if you look at even the content consumption can be done, the gaming can be another thing. And a lot of localized apps in the native languages uh, can be developed uh, so that people can uh, consume content which is more relevant to their business. So another example can be like, let's say, a lot of farmers are actually dependent on the weather conditions uh, for their crops, right? So they need um, approximately uh, a good, um, you can say, like forecast of what is the weather going to be like when they are going to sow their crops or cut their crops. So that information can be accessed to the basic feature phone because a lot of these uh, people are actually having access to only feature phones. So, and not only this, one step further, they can always have access to the rate of their yield, basically what they have been uh, growing on their fields. And if they go to a particular, let's say, to sell their crops, what will be the ample rate they will be getting so normally in a country like india they go almost like they travel to a couple of miles go there bargain there and then still do not get the optimum price for their yields right but if they have some a local app right they can always like look into these kind of things so that's that's a that's a particular um, important when we look into why that transition from 2G and 3G um, makes sense for 4G enabled smart feature phones because you you have that um, network speeds really uh, that you, that are necessary for these types of features to really uh, sh- show improvement or show benefit um, for these consumers and like you said too right it's um, it it really helps out for for the country and the GDP to to be able to get a lot of the population onto uh, more connected devices, um, especially for the SDGs. So now I actually want to pivot a little bit since we talked a lot about uh, 2G and 3G and 4G networks, and I want to talk about 5G now. So what do you think the role is for system on chip players like, um, for example, Unisoc um, in the 5G transition who you, you know, generally uh, are not in your Apple and Samsung devices uh, of the world. Um, it's it, They play in a different price band. So where do you think those players fit in into this 5G transition? So, yeah, so I think that there is a big opportunity, um, not only for Unisoc, but uh, other players as well. Uh, and 5G uh, is uh, not about just consumer point of view, right? It, it will be more enterprise as well. And, and that is where we can see uh, a good... Um, adoption or even uh, uh, from from Unisoc perspective, like let's say from narrowband IoT perspective, right? So for example, uh, if you look at Unisoc portfolio, they have been doing relatively good in the feature phone segment and in the low to mid-tier uh, uh, devices. Uh, so for example, when we talk about just the 5G smartphones, um, the recent partnership with Hisense, so that is about the smartphones, right? Uh, when we uh, look at from the other perspective. So, for example, uh, let's say a smart feature phone segment. So, so they have this um, uh, SOC, which is like T117. They have been doing for the uh, 4G feature phones. So, they are covering that ground pretty fast as well. 
and they have been successful in um, getting the design win in a couple of uh, operators as well. So, for example, um, in MEA, they have partnered with a carrier called Orange, um, launching a model um, with a OEM, ITEL, uh, which is uh, Orange Sansa XL, which is actually based on Unisoc. Uh, platform. Um, other examples as well in the same region, like you know, partnering with Vodafone as well, again based on the Uniswap uh, platform. So these uh, are the opportunities they they can always look at because uh, traditionally Uniswap has been very very strong in the feature phone segment, more than sixty percent share associate share in the uh, in the feature phone. But the question h- here is like what apart from smartphones or feature phones so for example um, i can see a big opportunity in this case can be cellular iot which is one of the fastest growing right um, and and it will it will cover a wide variety of devices uh, with the uh, 4g 3g or 2g support so what we are estimating in our research is um, if we look at the combined cellular IoT share um, uh, of baseband, it will be close to like 4.7 billion um, by 2024 um, and uh, contributing to almost like 12% of the total uh, baseband uh, value. And and this is the space we think that uh, Unisoc can do well. Um, uh, they have launched their recent 8908A um, ultra low power platform uh, which which can again go into a lot of devices um, the obviously the initial uh, starting point will be china but uh, they are covering a good ground in that aspect um, recently so i think uh, like for example uh, if you look at another example in this space uh, unisoc 8910 solution um, has been adopted by some of the leading uh, module manufacturers. Uh, so here, an example I can give from the China mobile IoT platform. They have partnered with Fibocom, uh, Neoway is another one. So, so I think uh, their initial upstart uh, has been quite good um, and covering fast. Uh, so yeah, uh, plenty of opportunities in in that space and other opportunities. If I can look into, uh, it can go into like smart variables as well, uh, where they can cover the ground. Uh, CPEs can be another interesting uh, segment uh, where they can um, actually uh, launch multiple solutions. Um, I think they have already uh, launched uh, something with China Unicom as well. Um, if I'm not wrong, with the solution B510. Uh, so, yeah, they have been um, uh, doing well in that scenario. And um, especially talking about Unisoc here, uh, they have plenty of opportunities to grow in the space as well. Yeah, so kind of just to, to summarize, I think what you're, what you're saying is um, SOC players have essentially an opportunity to foster good partnerships, either with uh, carriers or other component um, or hardware players uh, to really um, get these, uh, get the 5G transition going into these other verticals and leveraging their expertise that they have and being able to um, just uh, uh, use their knowledge of um, their you know, 4G um, products, and then also now um, driving down the cost for um, 
for 5G um, for modules um, uh, to, to, to get into these verticals. And Morris, you can relate even, even better, like uh, uh, another example apart from Uniswap is uh, one of the leading player Qualcomm in this space, for example, uh, you can relate even better, like uh, they are like miles ahead again from the competition and um, already offering an end-to-end portfolio, which is ranging from SOC to modem to RFFE antenna supporting both the sub-6 and millimeter wave. Uh, so these players are actually uh, doing really, really well uh, in, in this uh, space. And uh, that is one of the reasons we believe that the 5G ramp up uh, will be faster than what we have observed in any one of, in any of the previous technologies. Um, and, and you can add your view on that. Uh, I'm sure like you might have like a couple of points over there as well from what Qualcomm is doing. I think you have been following that very, very closely as well. Yeah, definitely. It's um, like you said, um, the, the 5G ramp up should should be a lot faster than um, that we see for, for 4G and other technologies. Um, especially, like you said, uh, the the enterprise uh, area for IoT um, will, will be a, a big driver for this, especially with end-to-end solutions. Um, but actually, um, this this brings up to us to my last question that we have uh, for you today, and um, I, I just want to kind of understand um, what what you see the current challenges are that we have with um, with with five G deployments. Uh, can can you give a little bit of more background for us there? Yeah, so I think like um, any other technologies, uh, it it comes with an opportunity and challenges as well. So um, after every decade, there is a technology transition. So I think the first and foremost uh, challenge, uh, what I can see in terms of 5G is the deployment uh, perspective. Like like there are different number of regions who are at different uh, cusp of their maturity in terms of 4G right now. So when I look at like markets, like we we have been uh, discussing this part in emerging markets, even the 4G penetration is still below 50% 50% in in lot of these countries uh, right and and uh, majority of these operators want to first leverage that um, and then obviously look into ways to put their resources into 5G so what that means is in some of the regions that deployment uh, might be delayed so let let us assume uh, let us take an example of a country like india uh, so where we are from uh, we, we have not even seen uh, like auctions as of now. Uh, in this case, uh, we are still eyeing 2021, which is one year down the line for possibility of 5G here. And India is now the second largest market in the world, right? Uh, so these kind of deployment challenges uh, will be there. Uh, I'm sure like uh, after that, uh, there will be a coverage challenges as well. Like for example, if you have to uh, look into the real potential of 5G, deploying millimeter wave will be very very crucial and and looking at that adoption right um, so which regions will lead that adoptions that that will also be uh, can also be looked into and i think again the developed regions like us japan will take the lead over there china uh, but a lot of these emerging markets uh, will have their uh, uh, deployment and coverage at their own pace so that's that's the challenge number one and and obviously across different spectrum band um, and the second one is uh, the cost of 
particular uh, building that network. So again, um, in some of the regions, um, bidding uh, for these um, uh, spectrum will be very, very high. Uh, it will be very expensive rollout. Um, and we need to look at uh, which are the carriers who are willing to go all out on these technologies because um, I'm sure they will look into like uh, the different scenarios uh, in terms of like uh, how much money will it take to uh, increase the coverage versus the desired revenue uh, or uh, they will stick to LT in some cases or so but over a period of time i'm sure there will be technologies which will reduce this uh, risk or uh, bring some more confidence into operators uh, to go all out on 5g because like i said uh, it's not just about consumers it, it will be about enterprises as well so there will be different use cases and that brings me to the challenge number three is uh, what are the different use cases and, and uh, one thing we are not uh, uh, sure about what are the top 10 use cases but one thing is very sure like different regions will have a different uh, priority of the use cases so some uh, somewhere fws fixed wireless will be a big priority in in other cases uh, you can have something else uh, which will be a, uh, driving the 5g adoptions um, so so it again depends upon uh, like different regions the different use cases so for example a use case in india of 5g uh, might be entirely different from uh, a, a use case of 5g in us so that's that's the challenge number three and then Again, we need to keep an eye on uh, what's the kind of uh, uh, regulations, right? Um, there will be a risk of security because we will be uh, more connected. One thing is for sure. And uh, the kind of technology adoption within our lives during 5G will be super fast, uh, just like this technology. So uh, for from an end user point of view, they need to be very aware about the security and how these devices will be connected and the impact in their daily lives. So that needs to be looked into as well. Uh, so I think these are the some of the challenges we can see. Uh, but the billion dollar question will be whether the opportunities will surpass these challenges, which has always been the case uh, in the technology transition. Yeah, that's uh, you bring up very good points about the challenges. Um, and I think that you know, at least, um, especially now during uh, this pandemic, also um, another challenge uh, is just how are 5G deployments doing during the pandemic, right? Um, and so <laughs> just just another thing to, 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 to look into as well. But um, those are my questions I had for today. So thank you for, um, for your contributions. Uh, I'm really glad that you were able to join us. Um, and uh, for our listeners, um, if you haven't listened to our previous podcast, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Music, um, as well as we'll have this on our regular website, counterpointresearch.com. If you want to know more about what Tarun has written, uh, the white paper will be on our website, and there will also be a link uh, in the description um, in, for this podcast below. Thanks a lot, everyone. And uh, until next time, take care.